I remember hearing years ago of a survey that was sent out by a Bible college to their Bible college students. The question was, if you are sleeping under a coconut tree and you should have been studying for your exam and a coconut fell on your head and killed you, would God welcome you into his kingdom? Over half the students thought that they would not get to heaven. Many of them thought that because they had been sleeping and had died before repenting of their sin of not studying, that that would exclude them from heaven. The first three chapters of Romans have reminded us that there is no one righteous and that we deserve God's wrath. No amount of trying to please God based on our own performance will help us. Not the law keeping, no amount of helping your neighbour. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we heard last week that a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, one which the law and the prophets had testified to. And we were forced to think, well, what have the law and the prophets been testifying to? How could this righteousness of God come to us if it's not through law? And chapter 3, verse 24 told us, and it's a verse worth memorising, I reckon, All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And Dougal invited us to receive that gloriously good news last week, didn't he? Someone asked Billy Graham in one of the last interviews that he ever had, why do you think God should let you into, into, into his heaven, Billy? He said, I won't be in heaven because I've preached to large crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose from the dead to give us eternal life. To be in relationship with God and to have it to last into eternity, you have to be righteous. If you're a Christian here today, you are righteous. You have been put on God's right side. Paul wants to wants us to make sure that what we're relying on the right way of getting this righteousness from God though, that we're not relying on things that actually can't bring it. And who better taken as an example than the one of the most important figures in Israelites' history? If you wanted to study how a cricketer gets spin on the ball, a leg spin bowler gets spin on the ball, you're not going to go down and watch some under-14 cricket match at your local club, are you? You're going to go watch and re-watch the great Shane Warne, aren't you? What did he do? How did he do it? What didn't he do? And so Paul takes his audience straight to one of their fathers, Abraham. You might have grown up singing that song, Father Abraham. Put your hands up if you just sang that song in. Yeah, good job. Everyone, most, a lot of people have. For the Jew, Abraham was a hugely important figure in the Old Testament. He'd been chosen by God, plucked out of Nowhereville, to be the father of many people who would receive a blessing 
Secondly, he was given specific promises by God. Imagine God making a promise to you, a promise of descendants, of land, and a promise that all peoples on earth would be blessed through you. And guess what? Abraham believed God's promise, even though he and Sarah hadn't had kids and didn't have a home at the time. So Father Abraham was the perfect person to use as an example. We are told that he had righteousness. Where did his righteousness come from, though? Where is Paul going to show us, and how is he going to show us? If you've got your outline there, we're going to see that, firstly, how Abraham was saved and what made him right with God and, and what didn't. Secondly, when, when was Abraham saved? And thirdly, what does real saving faith look like? The first option Paul suggests that it is maybe because righteousness comes through works. But was Abraham saved by his works? The answer is no. Verse 2, in fact, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. And look along in verse 3. What does scripture say? And this is a quote from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. It says, And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't through his works or his performance. King David knows that too. He can say, quoting in verse 7, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will, will not count against him. He wasn't trusting in his works. He was trusting in the God who justifies the ungodly, verse 5. The second option, Paul suggests, is that maybe righteousness comes through being circumcised as the Jews had believed. Point two, when was Abraham saved? Was it before or after circumcision? In verse 9 he says, is this blessing only for the circumcised? No, the blessing came before circumcision, didn't it? You see, circumcision was a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he already had. It's like heading to Harry Styles or an Ed Sheeran concert. It isn't the stamp on your hand at the gates that get you in. It was the ticket that got you got you paid for way too much for months earlier. You see, the stamp on your hand was just the sign that you had already been given entry. We have this beautiful picture of Abraham halfway through, the verse, through verse 11. Paul writes, He is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So righteousness doesn't come through works and it can't can't come through circumcision. Maybe it comes through the law. It's it's the very opposite though, isn't it? Chapter 3 has already told us that the, the law, that through the law we become conscious of our sin. And verse 15 tells us here, the law brings wrath. The law has done its job. It's made us aware of our sin, 
but it doesn't have the power to save us. It can't make us righteous. So what can? Just like Lady Macbeth was trying to wash imaginary blood off her hands and said, out damned spot, no amount of scrubbing or good works or obedience can make us clean. How do we remove the guilt of our sin and become clean or righteous in God's sight? Abraham didn't receive it through his works or circumcision or law, but he had it, didn't he? Point three in your outline, what does real saving faith look like? Let's look at verses 17 to 25. Verse 17 says, as it is written, this is from back in Genesis 17, where God had said to Abraham, he says, I have made your father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. And again, we hear it in verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Righteousness came to Abraham through belief. And belief in what? Down in verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. You see, our faith is an airy, it isn't an airy fairy feeling, is it? Or it's not an, a spiritual force. Faith is always in something. Real saving faith is in God's promises and believing it. And faith isn't for the faint heart, Paul is saying here. Abraham believed against all hope in verse 18. And verse 19, without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver. A 100-year-old bloke, a 90-year-old woman, it would seem hopeless and helpless. Acknowledging man's helplessness and trusting that God would keep his promise. Against all hope, Abraham, with his small faith, believed in God's strong promise. Abraham shows us that real saving faith continues even when it seems impossible. Well, if you've been listening so far, you might have noticed that, yes, our faith has to be like Abraham's, but in another way, it's, it's very different. Has anyone felt that? The helplessness of Abraham was feeling the, impos- was feeling the weight of the impossibility of being a father of many descendants when he was childless and when his wife was unable to have kids. But what's our helplessness? Romans 1 to 3 has told us that we have no hope of life when we look to ourselves. We only face death and judgment. Trust is our only hope. And for Abraham, he trusted that God could bring offspring when there seemed no possible way. And his small faith was a key factor in God's faithfulness to the promise. But differently to Abraham, what promise are we hoping in? That we will receive righteousness and life if we believe like he did? And we have much greater grounds for trusting God's promises, don't we? 
We only need to look back to the cross of Jesus, where God's wrath was taken on our behalf and our righteousness was provided by him. You see, real saving faith is belief in the promises of God despite our helplessness. How is this different from the world's view of faith? The world, the world might think faith is being a good person, trusting in your works to earn your righteousness. The world might think that faith is trusting in christening or baptism or confirmation or the cross you wear around your neck or your prayers to earn righteousness. The world might think faith is church attendance or financial giving or keeping the, the commandments to earn righteousness. That, that's so different from how faith is described in the Bible, eh? From beginning to end, God has always justified people by faith. Not their works, not their circumcision, not their law-keeping. Starting at Abraham and continuing with us today, verse 16, the promise comes by faith so that it might be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is father of us all. As Bible-believing Christians, we've got so much to be thankful for, don't we? What have we had credited to our account? Did you notice Paul's repetition of the word credited or credit? Ten times he mentioned it in that chapter. Once we were in debt to God, fallen short, subject of his wrath, but now we have been credited. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. King David knew it in verse 6, didn't he? Quoting from Psalm 32, God credits righteousness to people. Our sin won't be held against us. Look with me at verse 23. Here's the application from the passage, I reckon. If you've, listened, if you've not listened to anything up until this point, listen to this. The words it was credited to him were not written for Abraham alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. In order for us to gain credit, the cost was paid somewhere, somewhere else and by someone else. Paid on the cross when Jesus was delivered over to death for us. And our just justification was made sure by the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead. No, no, God raised him from the dead, defeating the power of death itself. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was declaring that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice as the payment for our sin. When we trust in that as our salvation, he counts that as righteousness so that we have absolute assurance that we have been credited righteousness and we are right in God's sight. 
So if you were sleeping under a coconut tree and you should have been studying for your exam and a coconut fell on your head and killed you and you hadn't repented for not studying, would God welcome you into heaven? Or like the question Billy Graham was asked, why do you think God should yet let you into his heaven? Our right standing with God, our righteousness, isn't based on our works or our religious practice or our following of the law. Real saving faith is belief in the promises of God despite our helplessness and our sin. Righteousness is something that has been credited to you, not earned by you. Credited to you by God through the debt that Jesus paid on the cross. It is done for you. Rest in it. Rely on him. One of the church fathers said this of the chapters, these chapters of Romans. He said, man's only righteousness is through the mercy of God in Christ, which is being offered by the gospel and is apprehended by faith. Let me finish with a wonderful old hymn written 150 years ago by a bloke called James Proctor. It's called It Is Finished. Nothing either great or small, nothing sinner no. Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. When he from lofty when when he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done. Hearken to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. Till to Jesus' work you cling, by a simple faith, doing is a deadly thing, doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete.